Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey man, how you been? I'm good. Uh, how have you been? How's your how's your um, your exercise regime? The health of your body? Very good. Well, you can see for yourself, can't you? Peak peak physical condition. Peak physical condition. Ready to record. I'm like Henry Cavill, you know. <laughs> yeah, but with a real human upper lip. Exactly. That's why I'm superior. Um. So, uh, big news this week. Uh, any listeners who who have been listening to the show for a while will know that Danny and I are big Potterheads. Um, Love it. We're always on Pottermore dot com <laughs> always i'm always checking and rechecking what my um what my sort of spirit animal is <laughs> patronus <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> i answer all the questions <laughs> waiting waiting to see what what it is that gets that, that my animal is because uh, it really defines me so we were both really excited when there's a bit um news about fantastic beasts 2 um fantastic beasts and where to find them is not really the sort of title which inspires you know like a franchise uh, like, doesn't sound like the sort of thing where you, the season to sequelize, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, that's a very specific and odd title, mainly because it's the name of like a textbook. So, um, yeah, you can't add a colon to it and then another title. That's just too many. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they had to shorten it to Fantastic Beasts, which suggests like that it's not. This is a whole series of movies. It's not only about um, you know, the, the background to this textbook, but it's about a series of different fantastic beasts. Like, that's the thematic thing tying everything together. Yeah. For the initial series, it was all about Harry Potter. This time, it's all about fantastic beasts. So um, they have released a photo of the cast from Fantastic Beasts 2, and they've also released the name of the movie, uh, which is Fantastic Beasts 2, colon, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Wow. And uh, I, d- I hate to um, spoil this for our listeners, but Grindelwald is, is played by Johnny Depp. That is one of the things that's revealed in the first Fantastic Beasts film. Um, and some may, and I certainly do, and I believe you do as well, yeah. <laughs> some may feel that this is a slightly old title given that it's already controversial, you know, that Johnny Depp's career has been completely untarnished by his, you know, actual crimes. <laughs> um, and then they've sort of named the film in such a way as it sounds like a reference to his own his yeah. own his own history. I mean, they've already established in the first movie that he can change his appearance. Yeah. So why can't he just change into like a different, better actor who hasn't got these this domestic abuse? Can't they just uh, have him? All they need him well, for like you know. one prologue scene where it turns out that the revelation at the end of that movie, you know, that he was actually Johnny Depp, was only another level of disguise. Yeah. And he and turns that into he Tom is, Hanks. He's actually Tom <laughs> Hanks. Some yeah, unimpeachable character like that, or he's a woman. Do you reckon the Fantastic Beast refers to? him the real beast is man but he's it's not fantastic though fantastic is quite positive 
It's true. The second movie should be called, like, Horrendous Beasts and Where to Find Them. Or something like that, you know? Two-headed sex beast. Appalling. (laughs) (laughs) The beast with two backs. Genocidal beasts (laughs) and where to find them. Yeah, it just sounds like a terrible idea. Especially because, like, J.K. Rowling's thing, which we we already discussed in the podcast, is, like, you know, being super woke on Twitter and, like, using the... Uh, reference points of Harry Potter to make all these like quite lame political points. Yeah, Harry, Harry Potter is a sort of perfect moral universe. Yeah, exactly. That's always being referred back to. So surely, she, you know, doesn't she have enough clout to say, can we not have this domestic abuse guy in my film? Like, yeah. she's written it. She's like, creates the whole thing. Do you reckon it's now the ethical choice is to cast people who are villains in reality as villains in films? Yeah. So that at least, you know, it's appropriate casting. That's true, because Johnny Depp was a bad guy in Murder on the Orient Express. He's a bad guy in Murder on the Orient Express. And Black Mass. All his latest movies, he just played villains, because that's... Well, as his physical appearance continues to deteriorate, and the sort of degeneracy of his lifestyle becomes more and more imprinted on his features, he can only be cast in such roles. His matinee idol days are over. I think we'll, we'll look back on his career and see the transition period as his role in The Lone Ranger, where he was not a villain... But he was like covered in like makeup and stuff and playing a different race to himself. So, you know, he was at some distance from 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 what he actually is. Uh, and then since then, he's been hitting the, 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 the alcohol and the drugs sufficiently hard that he's sort of, you know, his features are kind of collapsing. He looks like he hasn't slept since about 2007. <laughs> and he can only now it's like, play. It's like party slam, you know, take off his glasses, cracked eyeball, the veins are all burst. Exactly. Yeah. He's not. He doesn't like carry it as well as Robert Downey Jr. You know. Yeah. That's a man who's partied too hard, but Johnny Depp just looks like that was a bad party. It was both too <laughs> hard, but also not fun. It was that party that River Phoenix died at. He's still there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Anyway, oh, crimes. The crimes of Grindelwald. Look out for that one. Look out for that one. Look out for that one coming out. Can't wait to see it. Big Potter fans here. Big Potter heads. Uh, and just thrilled at the thought of some more beasts on the way. So, Danny, what, what is this What is this podcast? I'm glad you asked me that, Sam, because I should prepare a little... Please introduce it. A little, you know, rundown for our, for a first-time listener. So, Film Chat's a podcast all about Sam Foster, a mute, illiterate Louisiana farmer's son with an extreme fondness for goats who becomes a serial killer who goes after anyone who hurts goats and wreaks havoc on unsuspecting film crew shooting a film in the area... And also a subplot will involve a small crew following a uh, sheriff investigating the murders. Is what I would be saying. <laughs> this is a adaptation of the 2011 film Silent But Deadly. And uh, maybe I've just read the Wikipedia synopsis verbatim and changed a few of the words. Maybe I haven't. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran and joining me is a man who is the GOAT. When it comes to co-hosting a film podcast, Sam Foster. I love goats. Greatest of all time. Yes, thank that you. Was the wordplay. I know, I got it. It was very good. Cool. Uh, on this week's episode, Danny and I will be raising a marmalade sandwich, doffing our big red hats, buttoning up our duffel coats, and in some way, sort of manipulating and touching uh, a thousand other props relevant to Paddington 2, as we review that cuddly pro-migrant sequel. We'll also be discussing Good Time, the Robert Pattinson crime drama, which we will be giving a rave review in a flagrant attempt to curry favor with our favorite Twitter accounts at Rob Sest, at Love That Robert Guy, at C Diggory RIP, at Pattin Cake, Pattin Cake, RPATS fans, and at Rob Yourself All Over Me. 
Plus, we'll also be talking about the latest desperate extensive reshoots of an upcoming movie that are likely to be more interesting than the film itself. And the Hollywood-wide wooing of Quentin Tarantino, with studios building ever larger and more attractive naked fiberglass feet in an effort to entice him. All that should leave just enough time for me to just spin some new content off the top of my head, completely having not prepared it, but just through my own the power of my own wit, just coming out with some new stuff that I'm gonna that I'm gonna fill in uh, in in the, in the rest of the podcast because you don't really need to prepare things in advance when you're as gifted at the at the art of improvisation as me. You know what I mean? All you need to do is open your mouth, and great audio just comes straight out. So yes. so I should be able to fit some of that in. So watch out for that. All right, coming up a bit later, it's going to be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go viral. It's going to be a cut out and keep a little bit of audio for you. So we have some vicarious correspondence coming to us via Jake Hoskins, another listener, Jake Arnold. The Jakes tend to communicate amongst themselves. They're a shy tribe. They don't always reach out to others. Um, but uh, So via Jake Hoskins, Jake Arnold um, is pointing out to us that we were talking about uh, Margot Robbie last week, uh, who's a sort of underutilized, uh, good um, up-and-coming movie star who's finally got a role that you know seems like it wasn't uh, by and for um, very horny men, basically, uh, in this biopic about Tonya Harding, the ice skater. And Jake says, uh, not only is it really great that she's finally got a good role to get her teeth into, but it is in fact only down to her sheer grit that she set up an entire production company to give women more and better roles and is producing the whole film herself. See, what women, last say? still be complaining. If you want a good role, what are you going to do is <laughs> set up an entire production company and sort of finance the film yourself? All you got to do is generate the whole industry around not giving, you know, awful roles to you. Yeah. Say, so, yeah. So, yeah. But I'm quite, you know, I'm glad that's, uh, you know, uh, fair play to her for one thing. And I'm also glad that it wasn't just, it was like so noticeable that she has a non-shit role, that there's this entire story behind how that happened. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. not just like, you know, finally she gets one non-role like role where she doesn't have to sort of wear a T-shirt that she's like tied up directly under her breast to emphasize them or whatever. Uh, Jake also points us towards a, uh Italian poster for 12 Years a Slave, which was quite amusing. It features, it's kind of, it's kind of painterly style and it just features a massive Brad Pitt head with his sort of Jesus hair. <laughs> Um, and it says Brad Pitt above his head, and then like there's a little figure of Chewetelejufu running below below him, but it makes it look like a Brad Pitt like vehicle basically. He's in, he's in it for like five minutes. He's in it for about five minutes. He just turns up to remind us that slavery is bad and rescue our hero. He is sort of a bit of a Jesus figure, isn't it? Though he's literally a carpenter. Uh... That's true. He is a carpenter, and he sort of lectures like another guy about why slavery is bad, and then he rescues uh, rescues a slave. Yeah. So the painting does sort of like embody kind of his role in the film. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that, maybe not... that's just one like one of the character. You know when they do um, no, movie true. things where they have character posters? Yeah, all in. <laughs> Brad Pitt, Lupita. It'd be funny if you did that because like most of them are white, you know? Yeah, You'd be yeah. like, Benedict Cumberbatch in 12 Years a Slave. Paul Dano. Yeah. Anyway, so thanks a lot uh, for pointing us towards those, thanks, Jake. Jake. 
thanks, thanks to the Jake. other Jake. Yeah, the other Jake as well the for pointing Jake's us towards that. My other favorite message. Jack Nicholson film. <laughs> you know the Chinatown sequel. Which no one has seen. Everyone, everyone's seen that. <laughs> Even more correspondence. Very exciting. A man by the name of Matt Smith, the eleventh Doctor, or somebody with that name. I can't. There can't be two people called Matt Smith. That's too. That's particular. a crazy name. That's a you crazy would never. Name. That would never be duplicated. So I assume it's the actor. Uh, he says, "Hey guys, long time listener, first time question poser." You seem to agree a lot with each other's views on films, but which films do you disagree on? You know the kind of film when you find out the other liked or enjoyed, you couldn't help but lose a little respect for them. Also, you talk about the concept of genre films. What constitutes a genre film, and what films are deemed to not be genre films? Thanks. Good questions. We've, I think we've, we have of... fielded the, the, yeah, one of those before, the one about um, uh, films that we actually disagree on. What else? The New World? I think, yeah, the probably Sicario. the most dramatic example would be The New World, which we both saw together in the cinema and I left, like, <laughs> just a, a smaller and unhappier man. And I left. I left. I left. <laughs> I, I was skipping out of the cinema. I was, That's, I was this, is why, this is why you're a few inches taller than me, is because you were so filled with um, vitality. Yeah, from that film, whereas I, I came out bent and crooked, weighed under by the, the Malachian bullshit. It was, <laughs> it was so boring. <laughs> uh, struggle with it but uh, you know i always had to couch that with the uh caveat that you know when was that when they come out like 2006 or something yeah you were you were, i was a little i was a little baby a little baby so maybe now i'm watching it and be like balls. terrence you genius i get it now i get all this whispering about mother nature and whatever is well i do think the new world is the most uh the best story the fit is mode in a way because he loves nature so much but that is actually about like the sort of character pocahontas is a bit like this sort of spiritual mother earth character but it kind of dovetails a bit better than his other films you know what i mean because it's like these people going to this alien world of the new world all that nature stuff is a bit more ingrained in the plot than his other films that's true i know like you know your patience can vary on that but it feels a bit more appropriate it's not just olga karinka like dancing in a field i think that's definitely true but there is a danger there with casting the um uh, native americans as like you know this sort of alien Tree huggers. Alien tree huggers, yeah. That's which like is... Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which people said was kind of like Pocahontas, right? Exactly. But it, but it, but yeah, I think the new world does definitely suffer from a bit of that attitude. They got that thing where like, um, because they're, you know, from a less developed civilization, they don't really walk upright. They just kind of like hop around and grunt a lot, you know, in a sort of animalistic way. That's my memory of it anyway. Well, you say it's animalistic, but that's just, that's the kind of cloning attitudes, the film is against uh, is it against it yes or is it propagating it that's oh, the question something a racist would say yeah we, we also we also disagreed on sicario which i liked and gave a very glowing review to you on film chat and then danny saw later and dressed me down <laughs> you you gave me a very stern talking to over my inappropriately positive review i know that like that is generally considered to be like a really brilliant film and there's very few dissenting voices on that <laughs> but i would like to point out I feel like I've been borne out by the careers of everyone involved with that. Well, Taylor it is Sheridan's fair to say thing. Taylor Sheridan's subsequent films have not been as good. And I feel like with Villeneuve, you made this point, he's this sort of Nolan character, whereas movies aren't that smart. I'm not saying that much. Yeah. Also, I'd like to say of Sicario, because I never got to review it, there is a, um, there's that great joke in the first Austin Powers where they're like, no one thinks of the family of a henchman, and it keeps on cutting to like this sort of domestic bliss. And that is in Sicario, not as a joke. <laughs> and it's like 20 minutes long. 
Well, how serious can a film be when it like dramatizes <laughs> a dumb joke from Austin Powers' Man of Mystery? Um, no one picks up the family of the henchmen. It's yeah. literally that. Yeah, I don't Sorry, think I really that's a, a... Well, I think that it's fine to also have in your film like the life of somebody who in another similar film would not, you know, the film would ignore. Yeah, but I feel like the isn't the sort of isn't like but isn't like the the tr- you know the truth underlying the gag in Austin Powers is that <laughs> the flippant way that the Bond movies deal with violence would be, you know, it, you can't necessarily invest a serious drama in like a spy film, but in a different genre of movie entirely, it, it's reasonable to examine the consequences of violence in that way because that's what the whole movie is about. Yeah, but. You know, it's just it was just too stupid. It was like this character you follow for so long, and he just dumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it is yeah, a bit that's, si- that's right, audience. Yeah. You know that person who died, he had a life. It's like, I'm not a fucking child, Villeneuve. All right, it, w- it was a little bit silly. He's like, you know, he's got this sort of like perfect kind of like domestic bliss <laughs> life. He's like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> killed by the cutter. It's a bit like the guy, it's a bit like Locke, isn't it? With the kid who's like some like little child who loves football. Nothing is more uh, endearing and adorable than that. So that's, yeah. So don't bring up Sicario again. We almost ended the podcast just then. Thanks a lot, Matt. Yeah, there's, you've created a real atmosphere here, oh, Matt. Good. Danny and I now are at each other's throats. Uh, genre films. That's a, I think that's a relatively interesting question because I, I realized when I read that I hadn't really interrogated this idea too much, you know? Yeah, I guess it's quite a sort of vague, nebulous term now. It's like, basically to do with like uh, specific kinds of narratives where you have particular kind of like visual and narrative tropes that are all bundled yeah. together basically and it's like a kind of audience creator shorthand where you've got this kind of mutual understanding about what's going to be in the thing and it just is going to do that and maybe play with a few ideas but there's a lot of like common ground that you already know going in what's yeah. what, you, what you're in for basically um yeah i would agree with that I feel like it's the sort of thing where you could probably give a very scholarly response but i'm not you know well read enough to do so so i just have to kind of mumble my way through it but like, what is not a genre film then? Because you could like apply it to a lot of stuff. Michael Haneke films. Yeah, like well, like art house movies are not genre movies, right? Yeah. Because like, uh, you know, that's more of a sensibility than a genre. It, does, it doesn't come with like specific things or like you know specific narrative points or visual like tropes that you would expect to be in the, in particular things. They just. Uh... Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where if you analyze it, you know, long enough, it just all breaks down. And uh, we'll be talking about Tarantino later on but there's a really good essay he did about exploitation movies and because he you know obviously loves all those exploitation films and just saying that in the 70s exploitation films are ones that exploit a concept because they haven't got anything to sell the movie other than the poster whereas like a movie like like any hollywood movie is the exploitation movie and they're exploiting a movie star's cachet or a director's cachet or you know whatever yeah like every film is exploitation film any film that's designed to make money is exploiting something i see yeah yeah so in the same way like every movie is sort of a genre movie but i guess it's more yeah as you're saying how much does it riff on the sort of tropes you're familiar with like good time is a genre film but it's kind of like subverting a lot of tropes so yeah it's a genre film or is it still very much a genre film but like it doesn't pay off in the way and that's what's thrilling about it well maybe it's one of those things where the genre film exists more as an idea to be compared to a real film. Yeah. Rather than an actual film in and of itself. You know? I don't know. You've stumped us. You were the best doctor day. Really sad to see you. <laughs> that episode with the TARDIS. Uh, Listen, I tell you what, I tell you what, Matt, okay. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go and read some some film books. I'm gonna become the 
um, erudite podcaster that I ought to be. Um, you and inspired us, Matt. And then I will come back and I will give you a real answer to that question, and it's going to wow you, and you're going to be telling all your friends and repeating repeating my views to yeah, them at Comic Con or wherever you go, talking about your favorite. Episodes. You'll be at the latest con that you've that you visited, and and you'll be able to uh, you Peter Davison, David Tennant, Tom Baker. <laughs> you're really t- you <laughs> love this Doctor Who thing. It's a very common name. <laughs> leave leave the poor man alone. Space. He's he's <laughs> he's lived with that name his whole life, you know. Yeah, it's true. He's probably the OG Matt Smith. He's the OG. You're the OG Matt Smith. Yeah. Um, we also have a, a film chat first here. A, a birthday shout out. Never had one of those before. I've heard them on a lot of the bigger podcasts. Um, and now we remember when Ricky legit. Gervais did the first ever birthday shout out on on his podcast in 2001 or whatever it was. Yeah, it was incredible. And now we get to do one too. So um, I would like to wish happy birthday for uh the 22nd of november to james w of tooting beck happy birthday james w happy birthday james w um happy- i hope you have a good time on your birthday a much better time than robert patterson has in the film of that name because he has a bit of a rough time so i hope you have a better time than that yeah and have, uh yeah but i hope you have as good a time as the prisoners in paddington 2 have on the morning when they're all made marmalade sandwiches for breakfast they have a very good time that day. They absolutely do. <laughs> that that spiel was me uh, obliging. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, I requested it to tie tie the birthday shout out into the film's be reviewing. Yeah, so I've done that from now. From a charming girlfriend, Heather. She seems like a great gal. You want to lock that down? James. I have to say that Heather Quinnell's requests for us to do this were extraordinarily polite. Jeez. And uh, yeah. I'm a little bit in love, to be honest with you. <laughs> this Heather character. Don't, don't. <laughs> is this the way to... <laughs> no, this is, not, this is not the way to handle this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that beeping sound you hear is me putting this into reverse and, and slowly backing out. You're right, you're right. Well, while we're ahead. She seems very lovely. She seems lovely, uh, yeah. So happy, happy birthday, James. None of my ex-girlfriends have ever asked a podcast to give a shout-out to me. I don't think I've ever really, you know... That's true. Found, found I, I've sent endless endless requests to podcasts to have uh, my many ex-lovers called out. Just people on Tinder. Just like, yeah. <laughs> I haven't even met them, but I just get them not, a shout-out. I'm not out. even sure when the birthday is, but <laughs> just just throw that in there. Get the, get the shout-out like, going. Uh, you might want to listen to... <laughs> Radio, Latest uh, episode of Revolutions Podcast. Okay, they're in the middle of the American Civil War. I know you don't listen to it, but this one, you're going to want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, happy birthday, buddy. Have a great one. Drink, eat, be merry. I don't know what you do when you're 28. Same thing you did when you're 27, but just more so. Um, you're wiser, you're older. The world is your lobster. Yeah, neither of us are 28 yet, so we don't know what it's going to be like. Yeah. Listen, James, could you write in let us know... Once you've uh, had your birthday, what it's like. Because we're both 27, so it's coming up for us. Yeah, and we're terrified by the prospect of it. I don't want to be that old. I love being 27. Um, it's a cubic number, which is very... <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot to me. I don't want to relinquish that so soon. So just help soften that blow and give us, uh, give us a little pre- you know, preview. What, what that's going to be like. <laughs> I don't understand why people aren't constantly asking to do birthday shout-outs. We're so good at it. We've, look how much material... Well, how, oh, it's a good uh, 25 minutes just on this. 
<laughs> yeah, we won't cut that down at all. Absolutely not. It's all good. No, no, that was all gold. Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tips, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. So in the week we uh, haven't been recording an episode, lots of interesting, exciting news has come out about the latest uh, Ridley Scott movie, which is All the Money in the World, which is all about the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III, and how his uh, grandfather, the oil baron, John Paul Getty, didn't pay the ransom to the mob. And the movie was set for a December 22nd release, but it was a bit marred by the fact that Kevin Spacey was playing John Paul Getty under a lot of prosthetics. And they and obviously, obviously they, they wanted this to be like an awardsy movie and stuff. Exactly, and they were like, well, Kevin Spacey is, you know, he's uh, just like not good to have him in your movie. It's like a fucking death sentence. So really, Scott made the kind of crazy maverick decision to reshoot all his scenes with the 87-year-old Christopher Plummer. A much better choice, really, because he's... Well, he's actually appropriate to, for the age of the character. the age. And also, apparently, he was really Scott's first choice for the role, but the studio wanted them to have Kevin Spacey because he's a bit more of a name. Uh, so Ridley Scott must have felt very smug when he picked up the phone and being like, oh, it's going to cost a lot of money to fix this problem, which wouldn't exist if we just gone with Ridley's original plan. Yeah. So they are still going to make the December 22nd release date and it involves eight to ten days of additional shooting. Apparently the Kevin Spacey part was just more of a presence in a film than a main character. And a lot of the scenes were just him uh, by himself or in an office or one or two people dialogue scenes. So they've got Crystal Plummer in. They're going to have to get Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg back for a, you know, a sort of higher rate because obviously they were done shooting. And the whole thing's going to cost an additional ten million at least to yeah. fix it, but it's still going to make its December twenty second release date. I mean, that it's is kind, kind of, of outstanding, isn't it? That they didn't even have to change the release date of the movie, it and it's only a month fast, away. Right? Yeah, I mean, I feel that's like you know almost an indication of how like tossed off his films feel is like the speed at which he makes them. Well, Alien Covenant he just came out, right? Yeah, yeah. and he's already got this new one on the way. Um, maybe maybe the whole shooting schedule for the for the movie was only ten days. He only started filming it, <laughs> you know, the beginning of October or something. But apparently a couple of the impetuses around, you know, tuning it so fast and making the original release date is that it's like an oscar movie. And also uh, Danny Boyle has got a TV show called Trust coming out in the new year, which is the same story with uh, <laughs> Donald Sutherland playing John Paul Getty. Oh, that's really funny. Crystal Plummer was interviewed about this and he said, it's not really replacing, it's starting all over again. Although the situation is very sad. I'm very saddened by what happened to Kevin, but what can I do? I've got a role. I admire Ridley Scott and I'm thrilled to be making a movie for him. And so I thought that was it. Ages ago, I was in contention for the role. So I was familiar with it and then Ridley came to me and I agreed. I wanted to work with him. He's a very good, I love the script. The script is wonderful. And I much prefer Christopher Plummer is like, he's such a sort of cool old, he'd be a knight if he was British, but he's Canadian. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think one of the big um, draws of any movie star is the level of twinkle that they can oh produce from their eyes. And by that measure, Christopher Plummer is the greatest actor working today. He's so charming. I kind of felt like he pretty much carried the uh, David Fincher Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movie. That was the old Because he's so charming. Um, and yeah, I just loved him in it. I saw this is you know, not particularly on topic. Well, it's a bit on topic. But there's like a BBC uh, film adaptation of Hamlet in, from the 60s where he's Hamlet. Oh, wow. Uh, and has Robert Shaw as, what's the uncle called? Scar? Um, Claudius. <laughs> Claudius. Yes, yeah, Scar. And, uh, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and Michael Caine as Horatio in it. 
Right. And like all these like famous people. But uh, yeah, I don't know if someone put on Twitter or something, just him doing the to be or not to be speech. And it was really good. I know oh, that's right, like, that, that speech is so famous that you just feel like it's hard to do it in a way which feels like fresh. And I was like, you are an amazing actor, Christopher Plummer. And it's kind of hot. 60s plumber. Like, Sexy oh. plumber? Back yeah, in the 60s? Still the twinkle. Oh, it was yeah. A black and white twinkle, but it was still blindingly bright. It was very much. Blindingly bright. Yes. <laughs> um, have you seen the trailer for All the Money in the World? Uh, not the new one. Well, because the. Um, uh, oh, is there a new trailer? Is there a plumber trailer? Well, it, they've, like the rollout's starting now, so like they've, they've changed all the posters. All the posters have changed. Right, yeah. Uh, and I think the shoe doesn't. It's all going to be locked by the fifteenth. Oh, I see. Now, I see. A week later, so the, there hasn't been a new footage yet. So maybe there'll be no. Well, the, but I was just going to say, like in the original trailer, the spacey trailer. What's yeah. kind of funny about the way it's done is that there's, there's a kind of the whole trailer is set up as a reveal for the fact that Kevin Spacey is in the movie for some reason. Right, right. So like they kind of lay out the whole story and like the way that they tell it is just revolving around this tycoon figure, but you don't see him. And then the very final bit of the trailer. He uh, steps out in front of a massive crowd and, you know, says, like, yeah, I'm rich or whatever, and then turns <laughs> around. And it's uh, Kevin Spacey under huge amounts of prosthetic makeup to make him an ancient man. Mr. Getty, how much would you pay to release your grandson if not $17 million? Nothing. Odd, odd, really, they went for him. Yeah, but they, but it really, like, it's a real, like, star display. It's like the great Kevin Spacey yeah, from yeah, Nine yeah. Lives. Here he is. <laughs> he, he's in this, he's in this new film. I hope they go back and reshoot some of his previous films as well. Just well, like, this is like what the internet we need taken, to do some real you know. Stalin style, uh, just erasing Kevin Spacey from history. Well, there's been like a million memes of like Chris Plummer's now like an every disgraced actor. <laughs> he replaces like every single one of them. So he's like in the usual suspects. Now like a potential Glenn Glenn Ross. But then like I think it's gone past Kevin Spacey just be like every actor. Who's, like, a, who's ever had a scandal. Yeah. It's just he's replaced them all. Like he's going to be in the new Grindelwalds. I'm fully in favor of it. But Plummer in all those movies. He would have made a great Dumbledore. Yes. He would have made it. He would have been much better than Gambon in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Gambon, he doesn't have the twinkle in his eye. He's trying so hard. He's like uh, really sort of twitching that muscle in your in your cheek where you try to get the twinkle out. out, but it's just not coming out. I think Danny, once I think you got quite a good. I think you'll get quite a good twinkle. Thanks, you know, buddy. once you reach a certain age, once you start to gray a little bit, because you got like full cheeks and full cheekbones. You know, thanks, but and you got that good brow. <laughs> And it's it's all geared towards a uh, high quality twinkle. I want to become one of those people who's like really successful later in life. Maybe I'll turn to acting when I'm like sixty. Exactly, that's a great idea. And like when the twinkle's really you know you can carry once the, the twinkle kicks in. Yeah. You know uh, that that is the time to start heading to auditions. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I'll just podcast for twenty three years and turn to acting. Your bladder will start to fail, but that'll that'll be when your twinkle is really getting going. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and Gambon. I don't think Gambon has the twinkle. Gambon is much better as, uh, you know, villainous characters, I think. Yeah, kind of grumps. Grumps. Miserable fucking grumps. Not genial twinklers. So anyway, looking forward to that. Anyway. Well, I, like, I basically had, like, no interest in the film. And this, like, has definitely just, like, peaked it, like... Yeah, it seems, it seems that they are just basically reshooting the scenes in the actual places rather than doing them on green screen. That's what it says yeah, yeah. on this news story. 
we'll which see. is probably going to result in a better movie. But in a way, it's disappointing because you don't get that Justice League effect <laughs> of like squinting trying to work out the CGI. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they won't just like paint his head over Spacey's body or something, <laughs> which I was kind of hoping they would. Yeah. The final thing I would say about this, if uh, we can cut this or not, but like um, Christopher Plummer like won an Oscar you know, quite late in his career for Beginners, which was like five or six years ago. And it was cool because a bit like, hey, remember Christopher Plummer? He's a great actor. But it's a bit like he's got his Oscar and everyone's like forgotten about him again. Yeah. And he's like, he's still around. He's still like amazing in films. And I kind of, you know, it'd be, it's just cool that he gets another prominent role. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. Know, guy's pushing 90, but he's, you know, he's still got that twinkle. He's got the plums. <laughs> I can feel it in my plums. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's some more Weinstein fallout related news. Feels like most news that comes out of Hollywood now is in some way connected uh, to the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And um, so Quentin Tarantino is somebody who's been peripherally um, affected by it. Very, had a very close working relationship with Harvey Weinstein, obviously, for many years. Um, and um, didn't give much of a kind of statement on it at first and just had a need to process it. And then came out and said something about how uh, he basically felt guilty about the whole thing, that he'd heard the rumors and just thought he was like an angry guy chasing a secretary, like sort of old staff boss thing that how that was, you know, he realized that like that's obviously yeah, yeah. insufficient and blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's been left uh, slightly cut adrift from uh, the Weinstein company, obviously, or he's cut himself adrift, or the whole thing is, you know, failing and shutting down and being rebranded. <laughs> so Tarantino is on the loose. The studios are keen to pick up Tarantino and, and distribute and fund his next film, which was initially reported as being about Charles Manson and the Manson murders. But Tarantino has recently explained that it is, in fact, about... 1969, the year of the Manson murders, uh, and uh, Manson might be in the movie, but he won't be a prominent character, and it will be more about the mood uh, of that era. And various um, huge stars are kind of circling in the mix for roles, including Brad Pitt, Jennifer Lawrence, Margot Robbie, Samuel L. Jackson, Leonardo DiCaprio, all these all these big names, even Tom Cruise, the Cruise man himself. He's got a, wow. he, I wouldn't say he's got a twinkle, but he's got a kind of laser beam. He could play a cult leader, considering well, he's in a cult. So he's in know, a cult. So he he he, he actually is a cult leader. So <laughs> <laughs> so great casting. So that would be that would be fantastic casting. There were basically three major contenders: Paramount, Sony, and Warner Brothers, who have all been bending over backwards to get Tarantino into their stables. Uh, Variety was reporting that um, Warner Brothers uh, covered the um, their lot in 1960s cars and generally made this sort of vintage display of their entire studio thing, just purely in an effort to impress Quentin Tarantino. They, like, replaced the logo on the front with, like, how their logo looked around 1969. Wow. And all this kind of random shit. Um, and uh, Variety says, Sony cooked up a multimedia presentation discussing how it will handle the release of the film, as well as highlighting what, it's, what it saw as, as its competitive advantages. So they gave more of a sort of business-like pitch. Um, and has not been reported what Paramount did to impress Tarantino. 
I think my fiberglass feet thing might have featured. Um, All the women were forced to walk around barefoot. Actually, that's a bat. No, that would not happen. <laughs> Wait, no. Yeah, I think what they did was sexually harass women in an effort to please Quentin Tarantino, really putting their finger on the... Uh, <laughs> the reason he's there. On the, the reason place. he's there. Yeah, it was a bit of backfired massive. <laughs> so, so he didn't like that. Yeah, so he's, he's ended up uh, with Sony. They, they, they somehow impressed him enough. Um, and it's an interesting... I feel like because you normally imagine these dynamics as being basically the reverse... Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, especially in the case of, you know, like auto directors who make these very personal projects. And you don't and you usually imagine them as, you know, hugely commercially viable. But um, Tarantino has made something of an art recently of making films which have made tons of money and also felt like completely his creations. Yeah. A bit like Nolan, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but this one is going to be a big budget because it's like a period movie and it's been uh, said to be around the region of $100 million dollars. And uh, Tarantino is wanting like the final cut of the movie and like the what they call the first dollar profits. Don't really know what that is. He gets the very first dollar of profit that's made. Yeah. Um, one dollar. His money comes out first before the studio. Yes. Up to up to the value of a single dollar. <laughs> he gets the first dollar. <laughs> and he's happy. So so eventually they, Sony got him because uh, one of the guys in the room, one of their executives, has got a quote deep knowledge of film history according to tarantino say so that they found the most attractive nerd to nerd out with him and he wasn't impressed by all the vintage cars i mean like who they th- what they think we're trying to woo jerry seinfeld or something yeah, yeah, yeah. if it was seinfeld and you put a giant b on the front of your lot and like <laughs> filled it with um uh, vintage impalas or something maybe but do you think there's um you know because he's only making two more films He's like a limited commodity, right? There's only two more Tarantino movies to make money from. Well, he so said that, you know. his own values by, you know, limiting... He's like a Stradivarius violin, right? There's only going to be 10 of these <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, he's limited his own demand. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. But do you, do, you, do you sort of buy into that idea that he's only going to make 10 films, then he's going to stop? I don't know. Because doesn't he love movies? <laughs> but wouldn't he just keep making them? Because he loves he movies. like, right... Uh, like film literature and uh, plays and stuff, and maybe do a mini series. Yeah, but in like the history of people retiring early tends to be, you know, Michael Caine retired and he just came back and makes more films than you know <laughs> most actors. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it. But it certainly has enabled him to present every new film he releases as this great event, and it's always like part of the marketing for some reason, like the number, you know. Yeah, the yeah. eighth film from Quentin Tarantino is like that's a reason why you go to see a film. <laughs> He's made eight of these now. Got to see this. It is. It does feel like that. Basically, Hollywood is not making any like new auteurs that can like demand a kind of budget. I feel like that's like period might be just like dead now. Well, they're sort of and trying, it's... you know, but they don't turn out that well. But it's like it's sort of like only people like Tarantino who can do like a sort of sprawling drama set in the late sixties. Like no one else has the clout to make that happen. You yeah. Know? Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess. Yeah, like there's, yeah. there's a handful of names you can do it. So it's just always exciting because any movie of this nature just doesn't get made anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it'd be cool to see Tom Cruise and... Uh, I kind of like, I would like, kind of like to see Tom Cruise and DiCaprio, I feel like, the two most yeah. intense A-listers around. Well, they're, they're both actors who seem to sort of just, you know, kind of dominate the movies they're in. So to see them in an ensemble, like, you know, I feel like Tom Cruise's best movie is like Magnolia. Let's see. Right, yeah. Oh, if Magnolia didn't exist, it would be harder to imagine this because you you see him as somebody who uh, is like t- has a lot of creative demands, you know. I feel like Tom Cruise, like his most interesting part of his career was like the '90s, where he kind of worked with a lot of different directors 
and now he just everything is like a Tom Cruise movie, and he's like he's the auteur, and he imbues everything with just Tom Cruise-ness. Yeah, so, so it's like an auteur, him... but without any kind of creative vision. Or yeah, when's the last time he worked with like a sort of A-list director? Like it's been ages. Yeah. So you need someone like with a personality stronger than Tom Cruise. What about the guy who made with... Oblivion? <laughs> you know, his surname begins with K. Everyone remembers that guy, the director of Tron Legacy. Fucking legend. Oh, that's true. I take that back. But yeah. I'd love to see him in the hands of Tarantino. Put him in that man's hands. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat Good time. This is the latest project from the ever-interesting Robert Pattinson, a man whose every move seems to be an attempt to erase the Twilight films from your memory. Uh, it is an independently made uh, American crime drama film directed by the uh, sibling duo Ben and Josh Safdie, and it stars R. Pats um, and Jennifer Jason Lee is in it, and Barkad Abdi is in it, and he basically plays a uh, ne'er-do-well criminal man called Connie Nikas who breaks his mentally handicapped brother, Nick, uh, out of therapy and then takes him on an ill-advised bank robbery. And then he spends the rest of the movie running around trying to uh, get the money uh, to break the guy, um, get bail for him, basically, and committing a series of harebrained schemes in order to do it. At a certain point, he's holed up in a family's home in which he decides to disguise himself by dyeing his hair peroxide blonde in the process of which he's spotted by a 16-year-old girl. Let's hear a bit of that. Um... What's that in your hair? I found some hair dye in your bathroom. You dyed your hair. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a weirdo. I hope that's not the one from the bottom of the cabinet. Oh. I don't know what second. color your hair is going to turn oh out. I hope you don't mind. I took your mom's phone in here. That's not my mom, that's my grandmother, and I don't care what you do with that lady's phone as long as you don't bring Sorry, it back. Sorry, my mother, I just need to take this. Okay. Danny, so you saw this at the London Film Festival. It was, in fact, the first film I saw when the festival officially started, and it set the bar very high because I thought it was awesome. Well, yeah, you, you came away ranting and raving about what a, what a brilliant uh, film it was, and so I was excited to see it, and I got to see it on Friday, and I thought it was very good. I also liked it a lot. It's excellent. Yeah, it has this uh, amazing kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, then into a much bigger fire, then even into a bigger fire sort <laughs> of um, structure where, like, I feel like the characters are constantly only about, like, 30 seconds ahead of you, the audience, and uh, Connie is always making plans and they're going wrong and constantly recalibrating. It's kind of thrilling because as an audience member, you kind of get a handle of what the film's doing and then it kind of keeps on zigging, zigging and zagging. And you don't really know where it's going for like the majority of the film. Uh, it's really edge of your seat kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, there's something very uh, specifically satisfying about the cinematic experience where you really have no clue what is going to happen next. <laughs> There's, there's very little context given in the film. They, they sort of eke in little bits of contextual information uh, just to you know, give you sort of these little breadcrumbs enough to go on. But in general, you're constantly slightly disoriented and it really walks this um, uh, tightrope 
of not leaving not leaving you so confused you don't know what's going on but uh, not really explaining anything so you're always a bit uncertain um and uh yeah it's a it's a very very involving watch and like quite a stressful one as well but in but in quite a good way yeah i also thought like it's very uh, odd movie and the relationships it depicts are all very authentic feeling but all very strange and so like uh, the character rob hasen plays connie he sort of has this he's kind of devoted to his brother and like loves him but he's obviously like abusing him yeah yeah and like is his life his life probably would be better without him in it uh and so you're kind of rooting for him to break him out be like you shouldn't really be in his life it's this very kind of like interesting moral grayness to everything and every relationship is a bit like that like the clip with like the the relationship with this sort of teenage girl in the middle is this bizarre thing i've never seen in any movie where like a bank robber and a 16 year old girl hang out it gives you this constant feeling of discovery, I think, which is very pleasing, basically. It's sort of an interesting version of like an anti-hero type uh, movie because um, there is basically almost nothing heroic about Robert Patterson except the fact that he's you know, sort of trying to get his brother out of prison. But it's one of those th- things where if you were seeing the movie from a different perspective, you wouldn't have any sympathy with him at all, basically. Yeah. And it's purely the fact that the movie is following him and that you don't know quite enough about him to you know, hate him. He's too, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's too yeah. mysterious a character for you to know that he's a villain or not. Yeah. So you're kind of automatically left rooting for him because the movie is following him around in his antics. Um, and he gives this impression of being very resourceful. He's certainly constantly coming up with plans. And he doesn't tell you what those are. So you're always like trying to think, like, <laughs> what are you doing now? Like, what is the next idea that you've come up with? And it never seems to work out well. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's all anchored by Rob Patterson's like career best performance. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fantastic performance. I mean, he's been making interesting film choices for a while now. I mean, there's been some discussion around this movie of it of it being this really like you know breakout kind of dramatic role for him. But he, he's really he's only been doing these kinds of films for ages. I guess because I mean. he just does so much in this film. He's like yeah, kind of yeah. carrying the whole film. And but I mean, like... when did Cosmopolis come out? Like five years yeah, ago. Yeah, like... And you know, he's so he's been doing these kinds of weird art house roles for 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 some time. Uh, but this is a particularly particularly good one. Yeah, and it's also this very interesting uh, like portrait of a city. It's like a very New York movie, and I've, it's kind of obvious that the directors are like influenced by kind of that some seventies new wave New Hollywood stuff. And it makes I think within the contract of this kind of genre piece, it makes a lot of, like slight observations about the modern state of the city. Yeah. And because he like moves around New York so much, it's kind of like a little mini tour of uh, a certain like you know side of neighborhoods the city you don't stuff. see yeah it's all like a lot of poverty and like make some very slow observations about uh race yeah and uh the way the characters who aren't white are treated in the film uh which are like you know very welcome like little additions to like an otherwise like quite straightforward genre piece i, th- I think it does a good job of evoking that um sort of child of scorsese and tarantino <laughs> type film without just seeming like a lame knockoff because Scorsese and Tarantino are two directors whose styles are often imitated in ways that are incredibly irritating. Um, and this movie feels like very influenced by those directors, but um, in a in a way that doesn't, that it feels like it's very much its own thing. I, I think, yeah, part of that is to do with the authenticity of the portrayal of New York that obviously feels kind of personal to them, not just like, you know, via Scorsese grittiness or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not aping a style. It's just... Yeah, it's just like true to, you know, how they how they see the city. Um, and also it has a very distinctive soundtrack, um, which is this uh, pulsating, arpeggiated synth sounds. It's very loud. It's always like very prominent when it kicks in. 
and it's this kind of constant presence that's like tapping you on the shoulder being like don't relax <laughs> something's gonna fucking happen like you you cannot be calm for like a second yeah um which is in danger of getting exhausting i think another thing that's very clever about the way that the movie is paced is that at the moment where you, you've almost like sort of keeled over from stress the movie kind of relaxes a little bit there's like more humor creeps into it yeah um, and it allows you to sort of chill out for a moment and it's just such a relief. <laughs> There's like a flashback sequence that occurs and it's such a sort of balming moment because it's like, because this is in the oh. past, you know that you have a moment <laughs> to, you know, get away from the like constant horror of the present. Yeah, it's just a real like experience. It's a real experience, yeah. And it's it's just, it's a ton of fun. I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun in a, in a way that doesn't feel at all cheap. Yeah, it kind of cast a long shadow over that days of, that was like the first thing I watched on like a Thursday morning. What else did you see that day? Uh, Wonderstruck and Beach Rats. And I was like, this movie's like, Wonderstruck kind of sucks, but like Beach Rats was okay. But like, in good times, like, that's a fucking movie. Like, <laughs> I was watching it and I was like, you know, it went from A to Z in like 90 minutes. Yeah. Pretty much encompassed every emotion. Tense as hell. And I was like, oh God, I gotta, gotta go watch a fucking Todd Haynes movie now. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. There's so much like creativity and vision packed into it it's the sort of film that you would you know if i was like uh getting into filmmaking i would dream of making a movie like this you know where it doesn't look the budget was very much but it's just uh got such a tight grip on on what it's doing and is steering you you know you're you're in good hands basically and it's constantly like pushing you this way and that way very effectively played me like a drum played me like a fiddle read me like a book So yeah, go see it. Me up like the, a tube of toothpaste. One of the best films of the year, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a stunner. You can catch it on Curzon Home Cinema, which is what I did, and uh, I'm informed that that was a better experience than seeing it at the Curzon Soho, where they proceed the movie with like a four minute music video for some reason, and then some Wait. kind of tie in competition related to Pepsi or Sprite or something like that. What? Yeah, so you can avoid all that all that nonsense and just watch it in the comfort of your own home. CurzonHomeCinema.com. <laughs> Put in the uh, discount code FilmChatPodcast to get 10% off your order if you also watch three other films at the same time and have them running concurrently on different screens. That's an exclusive. (laughs) And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-clenchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Danny, hasty review from you, please. As urgent as the film you'll be talking about. Certainly. So Ingrid Goes West is out in cinemas. Here is the official synopsis. Following the death of her mother and a series of self-inflicted setbacks, young Ingrid Forman escapes a humdrum existence by moving out west to befriend her Instagram obsession, a Los Angeles socialite named Taylor Sloan. After a quick bond is forged between these unlikeliest of bu- between these unlikeliest of buddies, the facade begins to crack in both women's lives with comically malicious results. And I would play a clip, but it's a waste of time. So I didn't like this film at all. I think it's a film that is as shallow as its subject matter. And basically the thrust of the narrative is that the persona Ingrid creates to befriend Taylor, right, is as fake as the persona Taylor has on Instagram. Yes. Which is not even a point, really. Social media is well shallow, isn't it? It's shallow. All those photographs of brunch and dogs and stuff. If you haven't got that as a theme... Don't worry, because one of the characters will literally yell that uh, to another character in the movie to explain it to you. So that theme isn't at all interesting. It isn't really explored at all in the movie. And it's a very lame, out-of-touch, kids-today kind of view of social media. And it kind of misses the point, I think, because Instagram and Twitter or whatever is seeped in irony already. 
It's like making a joke about a platform for jokes. It doesn't make any sense. Like yeah, every mundane every mundane Twitter post is kind of like couched in the ir- irony of how mundane it is. And also, or, yeah, and the the shallowness is acknowledged. I think you yeah, know that exactly. when when you when you're sort of posting like a picture of you know your your uh, exercise bike or your the sunset you're looking at or something like nobody thinks like oh that's your entire life it's just everyone is aware that it's a projection of an image yeah exactly and i think this you know it's about shallowness but the characters are also quite skin deep like it has a lot of very annoying indie movie cliches the one that really graded me was the fact that as a character who's only defined by one interest so uh ingrid played by Aubrey plaza has this uh, boyfriend character played by ice cube's son O'Shea Jackson Jr., whatever his name is, and he just really likes Batman, and that's his thing. Doesn't make character, just a lot of jokes about Batman. And when I saw this at the London Film Festival, there's a lot of laughter, and I was like, everyone around me was like, you people are fucking idiots. All about this the is, Batman this jokes. This is not funny. And it's also a very misconceived film because there's a prologue sequence which established Orbi Plaza's character is some of mental health issues. And so the point the film is sort of trying to make about how Instagram culture, like, you know, affects people. It's kind of negated by the fact that the protagonist is obviously mentally unwell. So you're just watching the actions of somebody who is unbalanced. So it's like, how much does it relate to this character? She obviously needs psychiatric help. Well, I don't know what the point you're trying to make. Crazy people uh, act strangely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought that was a fatal misconception of the film. But the uh, I would say the saving grace is the acting is really good. And basically, Aubrey Plaza is, is such a charismatic performer that she can kind of carry a movie. And I kind of wish that she'd get a good role because I feel like, you know, I loved her in Parks and Rec and she's really funny and funny people. She's in a lot of like comedies where she has to get in her underwear. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, for God's sake, give this, I guess this is sort of like, you know, an acting tour de force by her, but this material is not meeting her halfway. So I would say give it a miss. It's a satire about a subject that is already self-satirizing, but doesn't really dig very deep. And it's kind of quite toothless in what it's doing. And if you want to watch something about instagram culture just watch that black mirror episode with bryce dallas howard it's only an hour and it's a kind of campy fun take on that whereas yeah. this was just like a bit of a slog is there a bit in the movie where she types lol and then it cuts to her face and she's not laughing at all yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes but yes that happens Yes, that happens. <laughs> brilliant. brilliant so yeah thought it was shit my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends And the terrorists try to stop her But she beats them in the end And now for a review of a film that we did not think was shit Paddington 2 Paddington 2 So this is the sequel to Paddington 1 Which came out in 2015 And was a delightful big screen adaptation Of the lovable little uh, bear man Created by, uh, <laughs> created by Michael Bond um and uh, Paddington in the sequel he is living it up in London he's having a everyone's having a lovely delightful time uh, and Paddington's aunt Lucy who is still living in Peru she is approaching 100 years old very venerable age Paddington wants to get her a birthday present and he discovers a book in Mr Gruber's shop that he decides to be the perfect gift for for her here's a clip oh what's this Ah, that must be the popping book. Very interesting. Really? You see, Madame Kostlova's great-grandmother, who started the fair, was also a brilliant artist. And every time they visited a new city, she made a popping book to remember it by. Oh, and this is London. 
Mr. Gruber, it's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London and never had the chance. But if she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. So um, he decides to get a job in order to save up the money to pay for this book. And uh, but just before he's able to, it is stolen by a mysterious person. Uh, it's Hugh Grant. <laughs> uh, Hugh Grant is a sort of uh, washed up actor who's got a sort of crazy uh, scheme to make money by nicking this book. And, you know, it goes on from there into other wild adventures. Um, so this is it's, it's thoroughly an enjoyable movie. And I think it does a good sequel job, basically, without being it's not super spectacular but it pretty much hits every single beat from the first film, does all the things that you liked in the first movie again in a way that's like inherently less imaginative because you know, you've know you kind of seen it all before with a yeah. hefty dose of Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, but it does them well enough that the movie you know, is just a lot of fun anyway. Yeah, it's, if you like the first movie, you'll like this movie, I think. It's not as, you know, it won't have as great an impact on you probably, but it's still thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, it was totally delightful. I laughed, I cried... I feel like you can't really not. I mean, just listen to Ben Whishaw's voice. Yeah, he's he's completely brilliant in it, and I don't know how he, he somehow he somehow manages to convey like being a kid, but he's like an adult at the same time. He's this weird nebulous age, or like is he like eight or like twenty eight? He's, and... he's like he's like a sort of precocious child with like the wisdom of an adult, but the voice of an adult. Yeah, you know, the, the behavior of a child or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's totally brilliant in it. And I think uh, the big strength of the movie is Hugh Grant as this villain. I think he's uh, a better villain than Nicole Kidman was. And having, oh yeah, I agree. Um, and having the villain being a struggling actor is like a masterstroke because there's obviously a lot of comedy potential in that conceit. And there's a lot of, like Hugh Grant doing different characters and like dressing up and having ludicrous disguises, which are hilarious. But I also think it's a very clever nemesis for Paddington because like Paddington is uh, what makes him so charming is that he's so genuine. And yeah. He's impossible. He can't deceive anybody. There's like a bit in the movie he has to pretend to be a bin and he can't do that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> like he takes everyone at face value and like, you know, can't deceive anybody. And so like, there's, I don't know, there's like an, it's a good clash of uh, personalities. Yeah. And also like the fact that the villain is just like trying to kick Saga's career. And, like, and there's a sort of theme in the movie that like nobody is beyond redemption. Everyone is, you know, if you're bad, it's because something means happened to you, you know, and you just need Paddington to, like, you know, remind you of your manners and everything will be okay. It shares the positivity about um, urban citizenry of Spider-Man. Yeah. There's 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 even a very similar kind of Spider-Man 2-like moment where, like, the citizens band together. Oh, my God, I was so on board. You know, but it's like, it's just like the diverse London version. It, the, the movie is kind of like a... Uh, a utopian vision of uh, a multicultural uh, urban life pretty much and it's yeah. not set in like london really it's set in like the fantasy london that that exists in the minds of you know certain kinds of londoner basically this like melting pot of life that like to be honest still kind of revolves around white people but it's like these sort of beatifically delightful perfect white family who are surrounded by characters, you know, from various different uh, ethnic cultures, and they yeah. all just get along so well. <laughs> and uh, and even like the pri- there's like this whole prison sequence in it, but like it's not really how prisons are. It's just like a lovely version of a prison where everyone is still kind of nice. <laughs> there's like this funny thing where the prison gets a kind of makeover, 
I don't know if that's too much of a spoiler, but the prison sort of improves at a certain point. And, but it was never that bad beforehand. So it kind of just goes from being like a nice prison to being some kind of insanely nice prison. And it's like, it's because bad things can't actually exist in this world. And I guess escapism is why you go to the movies uh, in, in a, lot, a lot of the time. But, it, but it's almost like an odd, odd move to choose to have this like prison sequence in the movie since you kind of feel like in the Paddington's world, they shouldn't really be prisons at all. They should just be this like... There are no bad people. There's no bad people. <laughs> there's no real bad like... You know, there's nothing structurally bad in society. Like society is just great. There's no like poor people, um, really. You know, it's just like this world where the this sort of perfect this bear who has like the perfect human attitude of just like kindness and gentleness and naivety uh, has just you know injected that into the world around him, and that's sort of what you see displayed. So I, I like, and I, I and I can see how you could find it somewhat hollow i think because it's this um it basically sidesteps any real problems you know and just like portrays it as everyone getting along uh and fine you know yeah you know it's <laughs> yeah it's, fine it's like a you movie right it's like it's, yeah it's about a bear like sandwiches you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's like i mean but it's not though is it it's it's like it's like this it's more than that. It's like a kind of pro-immigration fable about how we should treat others. Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't like uh, look at any of the reasons why the bad things exist. It's just like, you know, bad human psychological tendencies to be distrustful and mean. I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, it didn't really bother me. Like... No, I don't say it really bothered me, but I just, you know, I just no- noting, it, noting it in passing. I think it was so successful about it one of the many things that's successful about it is that it has a very like uh kind of almost like pixar or simpsons like gag rate but what the jokes are all coming from like different directions so it's got a little like very winning slapstick there's like i feel like you know paul king the director probably probably like watched a lot of buster keaton there's like you know a kind of chaplain's thing like if he's gonna run a barbershop obviously everything will go wrong yeah 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 uh but at the same time there's like loads of like really good wordplay and like you know visual gags and sometimes it's just the performances like the delivery of the lines are amazing and like every single supporting character is played by a british comedy actor and they all have like a bit of shtick yeah like, even though they have like one line it's like this is my line and i will like you know give it us all give it us all and uh hugh grant is uh just like hysterical in it. yeah hugh grant is hugh grant is brilliant in it um yeah and i don't know i just uh i don't think since like toy story or something where like like five minutes in, I was like, I just knew I was gonna like cry. I was like, I mean, like had me like, I did just show like an adorable bear. Like, I can't have anything happening to this bear, you know. I just love it more than I love, you know, close members of my family. I just like don't anything happen to Paddington. It's like a mixture of your the 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 em- empathetic connection you have with a real person and the sort of automatic desire, you know, uh, of love you feel towards an animal. Exactly, know? it's a fucking perfect storm it's of perfect, empathy. yeah. Um, so yeah, I would, uh, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. I had a, I had a whale of a time. Yeah, I laughed, me too. I cried, I cried and I laughed. I laughed again. You cranked. I cranked. You at lanked. At the very end, the end of the movie was very moving. I cried, but then in the credits there's a comedy sequence, so I laughed, laughed again. Yeah. What after, happened after that? I just went out, just got, just got some uh, food <laughs> of you, I think. Got a drink. <laughs> yeah, we got a drink. Went, went to the Spoons and then, uh, went to Wagamama's, had a yesai katsu curry. Went to Spoons, really cried. Right. Went to Wagamama's, laughed, laughed at, <laughs> laughed at all the. Only got two mo's these days. The noodles, I'm a fucking wreck. <laughs> One or the other. Yeah. Ooh, time.
chat Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack And telephone a friend so you know where she's at Right, that's enough, now back to film chat So, as we mentioned in our review, Paddington is uh, partly a story of uh, sort of pro-immigration story about why we should be accepting of others and the good that they can do in our society and, you know, celebration of difference and all that. Um, And there is a review of the film that I was uh, pointed towards um, by an immigration lawyer who also reviewed Paddington 1. And you can find these reviews on freemovement.org.uk and by, you know, Googling Googling around that. and uh, he gives a little bit of contextual information about how you know Paddington's uh, immigration status would work in the real system. Well, he illegally entered the country, right? Well, he exactly, yeah. He's an he's an illegal immigrant from Peru, from Peru <laughs> of all places. Um, and so I'm gonna we're gonna end this week's episode with a few cold hard facts, uh, which is you know you can take these away and um, repeat them at, at your your dinner tables and at lunch and stuff and impress people. So they say here. Um, it would be kind to start with the bits the filmmakers got right. The whole premise of Paddington 2 is that Aunt Lucy cannot come to London. All Paddington can do is send her letters about his new life in London. It is true that, as an unaccompanied asylum-seeking child, as he would be designated in the bureaucratic and dehumanising language of the Home Office, <laughs> he has no right to bring parents, adoptive or otherwise, to the UK. There is a major campaign underway to change that, if you're interested. Even if Paddington had somehow managed to obtain lawful residence, despite my predictions to the contrary back in 2014, There is still no way he could sponsor Aunt Lucy to come and live in London. She would be treated as an adult-dependent relative, a route that was basically shut down in 2012. To afford the application fee, Paddington would need to save over six times as much as he does for the pop-up book around which the plot revolves. For For that application to succeed, he would need to prove that Aunt Lucy, as a result of age, illness, or disability, requires long-term personal care to perform everyday tasks, and that there is no one in Peru to provide such care or it is not affordable. The Home Office would say that she can continue to live in her home for retired bears in Lima, no matter what her or Paddington's emotional needs might be. Every day, this inhuman immigration rule creates almost unimaginable anguish for many migrant families around the UK. Um, He goes on to talk about how uh, Paddington's everyday existence is completely unrealistic uh, because he seems to, you know, basically be getting about his business and doing fine and getting a job and stuff, despite the fact that he is already committing a criminal offence by simply remaining in the UK because he doesn't have proper immigration status. Uh, The lawyer writes, Our betters and masters have seen fit to layer illegality on illegality, and virtually anything else Paddington does over and above breathing attracts additional criminal and civil penalties. These affect not only Paddington himself, but also those who come into contact with him. This is what the Home Office and Theresa May have proudly called the hostile environment, almost as if they were setting out to create a war zone. Recent attempts have been made to rebrand at the complaint environment, but frankly, I think the Home Office might need some better PR people if they think that sounds any less sinister. Um, and I shan't read any more of that Blimey. because it's too real and upsetting. Uh, but it's a very good, very good piece, and I recommend uh, you go, you go check it out. So what kind of country we're living in that would get rid of Paddington Bear and would let his old aunt come and say hello on her birthday? Here's what I suggest: what a damning, Look, damning view of the state of affairs. Absolutely. And what we should do is, whenever we're listening to the radio, whenever we've got LBC on, or ever watching Question Time, and whenever anyone says immigrant or migrant or asylum seeker or refugee, just think of little Paddington Bear and imagine Ben Whishaw's voice, which is oh, wow. like a warm blanket sort of wafting over you. Uh, just imagine imagine that voice cracking and turning to tears and, and sobs and then being hauled away and you know thrown into uh, Yarl's Wood or something. If they just replaced, 
you know, it was just law that you couldn't say immigrant anymore. You just had to say Paddington Bear. Surely everyone would be pro-immigration within a day. It's like, you know, exactly. we, we it's don't like, have no room for these Paddington, oh, wait, oh, Paddington Bears. Yeah. It's like how you know. Labour managed to rebrand, you know, the bedroom tax and the dementia tax. The next needs to be, instead of immigrant, you just say Paddington Bear. Yeah. And that, that would create a real coup, I think, for uh, for the forces of good. Absolutely. So that is all we've got time for. Join us next week where we will be reviewing the hotly anticipated Justice League. We've already seen it. We've seen it. It's going to take us a few days to process it because there was there was a lot going on. Yeah, we only saw it yesterday. You can't you can't just like review Justice League right away. There's a lot to take in. And also reviewing Mudbound, which is on Netflix, which you could watch right now or wait for our review. You know, whichever you prefer. Whatever you like. Whatever you want to do. Um, and yeah, that's it. Until then, see you then. See you then. Let's do it. It's what a crucial element that makes a great actor. <laughs> Not a good actor, a great actor. Good. Well, I think um, in my experience of watching great acting, uh, it's always been someone who has, who has the great rage. I think the great rage is, is one that shakes them to their boots. And if you're capable of that, and I think I've seen a few actors who've done that. What Actually, do you, Mr. Oldman... What do you mean by the great rage? You do. The great rage, the great temper. Someone who can lose their temper suddenly, very quickly, and frighten the shit, not just out of the person he's playing with, but the audience as well. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but... Feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles. From bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.